You're listening to The Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 118. Today, I talk with Dr. Frances May Harden. She shares how she turned her malignant residency experience into tools and online resources that residents can use if they find themselves in a similar situation that she did. If you're an attending who's already in a job that you want to leave or you've been laid off, then join us Wednesday where Amanda Hill, healthcare lawyer and strong physician advocate, answers your question about what you need to know before you leave your job or if you've been laid off. Go to bosssurgery.com to register. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. We've been trying to get together for weeks. This is Dr. Frances May Harden. She is actually an ENT at my hospital, and we have both been involved in the online space of how to improve our lives as surgeons and just as doctors altogether. So I work more in the frame mind of once you're in the job, but Dr. Harden has been working more towards residency. And this really is where our patterns develop, where our habits develop. And we have a, a lot of room to improve how we treat residents and how the residency programs treat these people that are going to become the future physicians and surgeons. She's written a guide that's already out. She is writing a nonfiction memoir. She's going to have another book coming out. I am really excited for all that she has to offer, just completely looking at residency in a a different frame of of mind. But first, I want to hear her story because I think it's going to be really obvious why she thinks that we should be rethinking residency. So Dr. Harden, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Vertries. It's really, it's such an honor to, to join you today. And so for my story, I'm currently in my second year of practice as an attending. So of course, residency is not that far in the rearview mirror for me. And as an ENT resident, I had the distinct pleasure of being a resident for five years, not something like a three-year program, but five years in a very specific, unique type of environment that presents its own, again, unique set of challenges. The reason that I created the Rethinking Residency brand after graduating is because At the time of training, there were a host of just these so high stress situations involving multiple difficult personalities, and there really wasn't much of a roadmap for how to handle those. Even a medical student who stayed on top of their studies, did well, performed well on clinical rotations, even those scenarios don't really prepare you for the reality of a surgical residency training. And in my experience, I unfortunately was at a program that was really even nationally known for being pretty malignant. And so I do think that by experiencing one extreme of that spectrum in terms of a culture of fear and intimidation, bullying and abuse of residents at multiple levels, I really got to experience in the deep end, okay, what are different resources available? What are coping mechanisms that work? What are ways to survive really? 
How do you know you're in a, a malignant residency? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. At times- <laughs> Where to start, right? <laughs> at most times, it was relentless. What I mean by that is that in contrast to my entire life up to that point, up until residency, where I had really like a phenomenal education. I had teachers who enjoyed teaching. They, they were really kind in response to questions or even mistakes, things like that. I just, I had grown up in a really supportive environment. Okay. Mistakes are not the end of the world. We fix them. We explain our thought processes, things like that. In contrast, in my experience, starting from the time when I was junior resident, there would be times where say, you're in the operating room or in clinic with an attending. They ask you a question. The question could be something relatively obscure. And what I mean by that is, okay, what's the structure immediately deep to the vagus nerve? That is obviously a three-dimensional question, not amenable to Google, not really even amenable to searching in our textbooks because it requires so much um, auxiliary understanding of that space to really arrive at that answer. And when you're a learner, say, we don't know that the answer to that question. Okay. The attending would then not tell you the answer to that question. You would then go to your senior resident later that day on PM rounds. You'd say, Hey, I got hit with this question earlier today. I did not know the answer. Can you help me walk through that space? That would be met with go read a fucking book leave me alone. And that type of approach to questions you don't know the answer to, spaces or anatomy that you don't know the answer to every single day, not only is pretty dehumanizing, but it also does make it much more challenging to learn than I personally think is necessary. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating that we look at how we model what learning is like. And it sounds like that model was like, I don't have to tell you, you figure it out. And it makes you wonder what that resident who was thinking in the back of their mind of like, why did they say a statement like that? And I know a lot of times if someone asks us a question that we don't know, it's hard to say, I don't know, because we think maybe I should know, or I'm so stressed out. This is just one more thing. So when we look back and put ourselves in the shoes of that resident, you can see that they're a product of the residency too. And you're now staring at the product of the residency a few years ahead of you. And you can start to see how a residency like that creates the people that it creates because that's the treatment that's been modeled throughout the course of, of residency. So a lot of times you can see what a residency program is like by looking at the products of the residency. Absolutely. And for instance, even at the attending level, if they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to in the operating room, if they really do want to support and teach residents, then that's a good time to also state the answer, not just then operate in silence for the next three hours because you got the question wrong and you'll never know the answer to it. You know what I mean? Also at the attending level, another example of a malignant residency program and this just pervasive daily fear of the people that you work with, fear of making a mistake and things like that. For my first ever thyroid in the operating room with this one attending, I rounded extra early. I arrived 45 minutes early to the operating room because she's very particular. She had the room set up just, and she does provide ahead of time kind of notes like, hey, this is exactly how I want the room set up. This is exactly how I want the patient set up. And they're particular to her. That's very reasonable. And I do appreciate like those 
notes are given to you ahead of time. So I arrive 45 minutes early. I get the whole room set up the way that she wants, especially as much as I can prior to the patient being in the room. So the entire room is set up. I have things like the lidocaine already drawn up. I've already pre-made a shoulder roll, things like that for when the patient does roll in. Then, and I have no control over this, even though we were at first start, anesthesia rolls in with the patient about 10 minutes later than expected. So they roll in a little bit late. And then the process of actually going to sleep takes a little bit longer. So the patient is lying there awake on the bed for a few extra minutes. All of that is important because my setup of the patient, the shoulder roll, marking the surgical site, injecting, and letting the team prep, all of that cannot start until the patient is totally asleep and intubated. That was the limiting factor in this scenario. And the clock's ticking. I'm starting to panic because I'm very aware of the time. I know that this attending is very particular, but of course, there are some natural hold. She walks in right as the patient's being intubated. And she's immediately very displeased with what point we're at. So she's, oh my God, this person's not even marked, injected. There's no shoulder roll. The facial, the laryngeal monitor is not set up. All these types of things. And that led to a delay for the incision time, like when we ultimately started the case. And when we were starting the case, they did the timeout. And then she slapped her hands down on the table and she said, how is it already after 8 a.m.? And that's the last thing she said to me before we started that case. And then it was, of course, a very unpleasant two, two and a half hours after that. Hmm. And as a resident, what was that experience like for you to feel in that moment what was going on? It's really very stressful. The stress is just through the roof. And I really do think that we can give credit to 99.9% of people who have made it to the point of being in a surgical residency. To get you in my mindset, I care a lot about my work. I want to do very well every single day that I show up to work and I'm doing my best. What can happen is that when other people in the department just act, okay, I'm writing you off. You're lazy. For some reason, I walked into the room and the patient was not asleep and completely set up. It really is a setup where a lot of that falls onto the resident. For instance, that attending would never sass or blame anesthesia for the late entry into the room, taking a while to go to sleep. That's just a little bit the hierarchy in the hospital. The best, easiest, right in front of you person to blame is going to be the resident. If you're the senior resident, you can blame the junior resident. Junior resident can blame an intern. Attending can pick any resident to blame. And they'll usually pick the highest ranking one in the room at the time. So all of that dynamic, it does weigh on you. And five years is a really long time to truly live in fear and have your nervous system activated every single day that you're at work. Yeah, I always think about what are we modeling for our residents? And this is true for our kids and everything too. Like the two things that I know that surgeons do that seems like a good idea, but in the end, it's difficult, is we model complete ownership of processes, which is great. We have ownership of patients and ownership of processes, ownership of what happens in the OR. And the big problem is that we can't take ownership of everything. You cannot control everything. So the second 
category that we model for residents and our kids and everything too, is the idea that it has to be perfect. So you're set up for whatever is out there in the environment and using it to harm yourself. Like I must control all the situations and I must be perfect. And how's that going to work? We are unconsciously modeling this because if you're saying that I must be making this incision by here and the resident feels that pressure to control all the things that they cannot control, it's spending a lot of effort on things that we cannot control, which is keeping us from things that we could control. It's keeping us from being open and thinking about the case. When we are trying to do everybody else's job so we can achieve this metric that sometimes is not achievable, what happens is we spend a lot of effort and energy and we have limited number or limited amount of effort and time and energy. And if we're spending it on something that is really not our place to do, it's a lot of wasted effort. And if we're setting ourselves up for this goal of perfection that's not attainable, then it's basically saying, I'm going to be a failure every single day. How fun is that? Exactly. And just the fear of knowing that you won't be met with understanding, you'll be met with derision, public humiliation, that hangs over you. And like you said, discipline, focus, those are like muscles. Yeah, you can work them out, you can build them up, but they are exhaustible resources. So exactly like what you're saying, that type of a work environment makes it extraordinarily difficult for the, that resident to then go home and say, okay, I have two or three hours to study tonight because it's so exhausting to perform those types of gymnastics and worry about those things and have all these other accessory tasks at work. Another great example that I'll use is that I would have attendings 30 minutes before a case say, hey, this instrument was supposed to arrive. The rep swears to me that they shipped it a few days ago. Go down to mail central processing and find it. Otherwise, we're canceling this case. It's like a laser adapter that we need. So that type of thing, again, enormously stressful. That onus is put on the resident. They're like, go down to mail and find this. Mm -hmm. So you're down in the basement panicking. You've already pre-op the patient. You're like, oh my gosh, is this case going to cancel? How can I best find this? And so there is some literature out there about the accessory work, things like transport, phlebotomy, that sometimes residents are burdened with just because we are the lowest common denominator. And I can't tell you how many times the transport team in the hospital was backed up, just really busy. And so then it does fall on the resident to just say, okay, if I don't get this patient to X location on time, I'm going to get in trouble. So you just start transporting them yourselves. And this is a thought that, that follows us through our training and out into us being attendings in the world, which is essentially the statement, the system's broken, but I will use my resident to overcome the broken system. And what we do when we take ownership of that, when the system is broken, we think that we are responsible for doing so. When we basically take ownership of a broken system and we put our worth on whether we can overcome that broken system, it's a lot of extra pressure. It sets us up for failure. The reward for this is punishment if we don't do it. And it sends the message that it doesn't matter what system we're in, I will overcome it. And this is all my fault or my responsibility to overcome all the things that are going on uh, in the system. And I see this all the time too. We don't try to make the system better. We think that we just have to be better. That is very harmful. And the fact that we're never taught that it's the system, it's the system that should improve. We're taught that we should improve. 
And so when you're given this overwhelming task, it's just impossible to do. Yes. And I, this is actually a fairly common point that I've seen people interact with the Rethinking Residency brand. And they say, hey, instead of arming residents with all these tools to survive, why don't we say uh, attending can't bully you like that anymore? And my answer to that for now is that I cannot change your attendings. I couldn't change my attendings at the time, and I can't change your attendings now. I only have control over myself. And the thing is that changes in medical education, of course, take years to really take effect. That being said, I don't want people to be nihilistic about it. I would just remind them, you need to survive today, this week, this academic year. And that's really the focus of Rethinking Residency is to say, we can get you the tools to do that the best way that we know how. There's a lot of advice out there that says, okay, for a resident who's stuck in a malignant program, they're having a difficult time. One, keep your head down. And two, run out the clock. I think that we can do a lot better than those pieces of advice. I've certainly received both in my day. And I will even go as far as to say that when I was a junior resident and there were very significant issues of senior residents bullying junior residents, there were other senior residents there at the time. And even some of them were very nice people. They were no drama. They certainly weren't bullies themselves. However, they had adopted the just keep your head down, just stay out of it mentality. So there was no intervention, there was no help, and they got out themselves, but obviously I think we can do a lot more for those who come and train after us. And I love that we're approaching this from different perspectives, because I work a lot with attendings, and so I... In this process, I recognize in an abusive environment, like the victim becomes the villain and it perpetuates the cycle. And everyone is hurting in this model. And when we look at the resonance as victims, then we treat them like victims. And I'm not always 100% sure that's helpful. And then when we look at the residents and the ones who have followed through in this cycle and have become like the, the villains themselves, if you would, then treating them like villains doesn't necessarily help. For us to step back and look at the system, which I, I think is a really smart way that you're going about this, is just saying, hey, why don't we just rethink this altogether? We see this cycle. We see how this is not helping everybody. Why don't we rethink residency altogether? So when it comes to rethinking residency, what are some of the solutions that you would offer and how to break this cycle and get residency to where our products of residency are what we really want? Mm-hmm. I really recommend being conscientious about one's own behavior, because exactly like you said, certain poor behavior can be modeled for us. We're a junior resident, and so we see it at the senior resident and attending level. Then subconsciously, and I've seen this, when you become a senior resident, it can be very tempting to recreate those toxic patterns. Even to this day, occasionally people will make an error. And my first thought is, you would, you, oh man, you would have gotten chewed up by X or Y or Z person if you did that in front of them. Just because some of those tracks are very deep. Like I saw it every day for five years. That being said, it is possible 
And I really do hold myself to being militant and just responding in a way that I can live with, that I can be proud of, and that people, you know, are happy to work with me. Obviously, I wouldn't put words in their mouth, but certainly I don't know of anyone who is fearful working with me. And obviously, a lot of these principles of how you get through residency, how you made it through, what you come out of it with, they do translate to attending life, like you've said, because now as an attending, I care a lot and I put a lot of effort into self-discipline to make sure that I'm not that kind of attending where a circulator in the OR hears my voice from a hallway away and they freeze in their place and they're like, oh my gosh, a storm's coming. Those people are very much still alive and well and operating. In terms of discrete skills, a lot of what helped me and part of my personal story is that years one through four of residency, I basically just white knuckled it. That has had some negative effects. I wouldn't recommend to anybody to just white knuckle their life for four years. But when I was a chief and had a lot of control over the schedule, I joined a dialectic behavioral therapy DBT skills group Tuesdays at 7 p.m. for eight weeks. And that's the first time that I'd heard really of any of those skills. The four buckets of DBT are mindfulness, emotional regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. So the second I started learning tools like that, I, it just stopped me in my tracks. Every single thing that our moderators were teaching us, I was like, oh my gosh, where was this two years ago? Truly, Improving your interpersonal effectiveness, that would benefit any resident on the planet today. Increasing your distress tolerance, particularly in a surgical residency, in a malignant surgical residency training. Had I had a higher distress tolerance the whole time, I do think that I would have left more unscathed. And then really one of the tenets of applying all these skills to residents and what rethinking residency is trying to do is to say, okay, there are wellness tips out there. How practical or useful are they really to the resident on the go? Yeah. You can imagine Without your the awareness that you talked about. Exactly. Absolutely. And so you could be a medicine resident on morning rounds. You can be a surgical resident scrubbed into the operating room. Those quote unquote, typical wellness tips listen to a song that you really go for a walk around the block and get some fresh air and look at the trees none of those really apply. And in fact, for a struggling resident, they can just compound the problem and really make the sense of isolation and despair even greater. So different distress tolerance skills, such as practicing radical acceptance, half smile, willing hands, those are all really wonderful. There's a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy-based fallacies that we can understand, things like fallacy of fairness, there are techniques like alternate rebellion, and we really walk through a lot of those resources, both on our website, on our Instagram, several times a week. And we're just trying to arm residents to get out as unscathed as possible. And I know that this will break the cycle because these attendings that are acting out in ways that are not helpful to anyone are not any happier. I can tell you for sure. As I work with several people who have become products of these environments, it can be so challenging to recognize the problem. It's not that the system doesn't need to change. It's our response to the system needs to change, and that will change the system. 
we follow that cycle, we fall in line, we do exactly what people have done, which we've already mentioned doesn't actually help. So when did you start breaking that cycle yourself? Where were the moments in time where you identified something's got to change? By the time that I was a second year resident, that is really when it became obvious that there were a lot of toxic dynamics at play at every level in our department. As an intern, ENT residents spend at least six months off service. They're not really deeply ingrained in the department structurally. By the time that I was a second year, I even wrote an article back then. It was published in Missouri Magazine, and it was called What We Owe to Each Other. And it, it literally was about what I believed was a civic duty for people not to abuse each other in the workplace. Like, I never thought that, that was acceptable When I saw it happening just day in and day out, again, at multiple levels, I thought it was unacceptable. There are all sorts of factors at play, but senior resident bullying at the time, chief resident, senior resident bullying at the time was all reported to the program director and no action was taken. A few years later, we would learn that gentleman who was the topic of those reported instances He was telling the program director, these junior residents don't have what it takes. They don't have what it takes. They're terrible. He was like, they're not going to make it. Their clinical decision-making ability, zero. They're just not competent or good residents. Of course, meanwhile, junior residents are reporting his abuse to the program director, and it took years. I was a senior resident when I received a phone call, a voicemail, an apology from the program director about all of this. That's how many years it took to unspool various lies that had been planted years before. What was the apology about? What were some of the messages that you heard in that apology? Yeah, I still have the voicemail to this day. It was definitely, it was nice to hear. It said, I'm sorry, I believed him. And now, obviously, over the past couple years, many things have come to light that make it more obvious that you were being straightforward and honest, and he wasn't. He was really, like, deliberately sowing all these seeds of mistrust, toxicity that would go on to be pervasive for my next several years of residency. Yikes. After that apology, what changed for you? I would say it was so close towards the end of residency that It didn't change anything. I appreciated it. I was already starting to explore ways to start to heal. And I really appreciate that I did get a little bit of room to do that. Because like I said, I was a chief resident when I had already lined up my attending job. I was performing chief duties, running the service, things like that. But even by that time, without even having finished residency yet, I was like, oh, I can tell There are a lot of things that happened over the past several years that I'm going to need to heal from. I don't want to take them with me. I don't want to be healing from, recovering from residency my whole life. And I will say that I meet people all the time who are doing that. They leave residency. It was traumatic for them as well. They squash it down and they just move on with their lives. And I had an attending come to me one day. This was when I was a senior resident. There was an incident where an attending had screamed at me for 20 minutes in the operating room. Again, just like belittling you, harassing you, scrubbed in with them. We were just working the whole time. And this attending was honestly so overtly mean about it. 
that I guess other attendings had heard about it. So anyway, a separate attending comes up to me. He pulls me aside in the hallway. He was like, hey, like, happy to talk about like that kind of case if you want to go over it, anything like that. I was like, no, I think I'm okay. Like, I don't need your notes. I had studied the textbooks. Obviously, textbooks don't always 100% translate to 3D intra-op anatomy. And he told me, he was like, hey, listen, it happened. He said, when I was an intern doing during my surgical training, he was like, this one night, I remember I'd been on call for 24 hours and at three or four in the morning, my senior resident pulled me aside and just lit me up for an hour. He was like, he insulted my education, my family, my upbringing, everything about me, told me I was totally worthless. And he's telling me this story standing in the hallway, tears in his eyes. And his conclusion was, that it happens and it's okay. I politely was like, I do appreciate like your gesture of kindness. Obviously you're trying to help me. I can see that you are trying to help me in this moment. I didn't, but I wanted to point out to him, you don't seem that good, man. You're recounting the story from many years ago. You are going to cry now. And I really do think that there's this so overwhelming culture in medicine particularly in surgery, of people having survived this. And there's a sense, okay, I survived it. You definitely can. I don't really see anything wrong with this behavior. But yet people, I just see them stay hurt for years and years. And I stay friends with other residents who I trained with, who are now several years out, and they're not healed either. So I guess my twofold goal would be If you're currently training, hey, if you're a med student, you can cope ahead. We can get you set up with some of these skills early in life and you can start implementing them. If you're a resident, we can make your training experience better. We can make the way that you play the game be smoother, done with honor, done in a way where you're not going to be like 10 years out still crying about stuff that happened to you in residency. And then number three, If you have graduated residency, but you're like, okay, that's true. I did have some messed up stuff happen to me at the time. I never really looked it in the eye or addressed it. It's life's too short. I really personally don't. And I think a lot of people don't want to carry that around forever. Yes. And gosh, I resonate so much with all the things that you're saying. I always heard that our residency was malignant. I was like, nah, it seemed fine to me. (laughs) until you get to talking to people about stuff. And that's the nice thing about different environments and broadening your network is you start to see that there are different ways to do things. And then when you say some of these stories out loud and start to realize the effect that you have on you, it's, oh gosh, that was, maybe that was actually a little bit malignant now that I look back in time and see some of the, the things that had the potential for doing so. And I love this idea of cope ahead of time which isn't that just a a beautiful sentiment of saying that we're going to give you the tools before you need them, because we don't want to try to to dig up a a toolbox and figure out how to do things in the moment in an emergency. We're going to build this toolbox so you have it whenever you need it. This idea of cope ahead is just genius. And then working on a strategy of when you're in the environment is really helpful. And I know that you're approaching it from all these different angles. So tell me a little bit about the resources that you have already and what's coming. Absolutely. Thank you. And certainly, like you said, medical students have great interest in this topic. They are, of course, again, these are really high achieving people and they are resilient people. That doesn't mean that we should push them to the hedge over the course of their training. But I did give a lecture at a medical school 
a couple months ago on enhancing interpersonal effectiveness. It was a full hour just on the interpersonal effectiveness skills. And it was very well received. When I met with the DEI department at the school afterwards, they told me that this was the best attended and best reviewed lecture from a visitor this year, including like more distinguished speakers. Amazing. So the audience is there. Like people want these skills. And so that's what we're providing them. What we have is the Rethinking Residency website. It is rethinkingresidency.com. And on that site, there's really two main portions. The first is a set of articles written by current or recent former residents. And those topics range hugely from getting a pet in residency to long distance relationships in residency to taking a mental health sabbatical during training. So that they're wonderful. They're just very uh, highly varied. And those pieces are on the site. The other half of the website is static resources. Resources for those experiencing suicidal ideation. A lot of articles that are written by myself on the DBT skills. So interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, mindfulness, just a primer for people. There's also a really handy guide on WRVUs. What are they? What do they mean? That's a very common question. And so we have typed up this layman's comprehensive guide for the resident or the medical student or, or the interested reader in how those things work. So that's really one set of resources. Our ebook, How to Win the Game of Residency, will be coming out soon. And then there's also things like the Instagram account. And that has a lot of little bite-sized resources. It has different common cognitive fallacies, common pitfalls, and then just really, like I said, bite-sized pieces of advice for the resident on the go who's just scrolling through their social media. It's such a, a great variety of information to offer people. And your mission is so important and so needed. And I think like all successful people, you just identified a gap that was needed based on the experience that we had. And so I know a lot of your success and all of these things, these tools that you've identified that are needed all came from a painful experience going through training. So what would be the one thing that you would tell that we haven't mentioned already? What is one thing that someone who's going through this pain right now, what would you want to tell them? What's the message? So I would use one of my favorite Viktor Frankl quotes which is really the inspiration for all this work. And the quote is, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Yes, I completely resonate with that message. And I think it's really important, just like we mentioned earlier, it matters in how we deliver that message. Because if someone is already feeling like the victim, that they're at the the mercy of all the things, they may not quite see that they really are the hero of their story. And recognizing, though, that the situation is insurmountable, is out of our control, the system is broken, there is a lot of things that are real and going on. But what doesn't change is the fact of our ability to get out of these situations. Viktor Frankl, being a psychiatrist who was in probably the worst situation you can imagine of being in Auschwitz, found a way to get his power back, found a way to recognize how much power we individually have over ourselves and of the system. His exponential effect on the world is remarkable. And all of us have that ability. So I see that in your story too. I see someone who you know went through an experience that was challenging and found just enough of that little spark in us to say, 
no, this is not right. Something about this is not right. And recognizing that I might have the ability to turn it all around. I might have the ability to exponentially change the world, not just change my environment. And I know you didn't start off doing that. I know you just wanted to feel better at that moment, but look at all the things that you've done. So (laughs) I'm so proud of you. Oh my gosh, thank you. And the other thing I'd tell people to give them a little bit of hope is that when you do change yourself, okay, and I played the game in a way that was honorable, I didn't perpetuate those nasty insults, the public humiliation that was levied against us as residents. I'm still friends to this day with multiple junior residents. They are now the seniors running that service. And they report to me, they lead in a supportive kind way. And so their junior residents are not experiencing the type of stuff that we saw seven years ago in my experience. And it really is the next generation. It's they just get smarter and more empathetic all the time. And I think that by breaking the cycle, which was at least not perpetuating the toxic or abusive behavior, they were able to also lead in a supportive way and Hopefully things like what I experienced are happening less and less there. Of course, there's also things like the ACGME investigation may may have changed the culture a little bit. And when I was there, we were missing one entire class of residents. And so anyone who's familiar with the structure of residency can imagine how much that can derange a program. And I think that big change like this, like the whole culture of residency change does occur like one degree at a time. And so I think everyone along the way has the ability to contribute to it and keep it along the same lines. But it sounds like a lot of people that you've encountered, especially in this particular residency, started really working towards those one degree of change. So in a few years, it's probably going to be unrecognizable, which is fantastic because some things really do need to change. Thank you, Dr. Harden, for coming on. This is incredibly important. And Tell us again where people can find all these amazing resources that you've talked about. So the website is rethinkingresidency.com. You can also find more of my personal work, writing, speaking engagements, coaching at francismay.com. And then the Instagram handles are at rethinkingresidency and at md. I will make sure that these are on the show notes so people can find them too. Uh, So again, thank you so much for coming on today. Such a valuable mission that you have. I'm just so happy that you're in this space and that you're helping these people really improve all of medicine. This is so important. Thank you so much for having me on and allowing me and my resources to have a voice. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.